Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, January 4th, day 90 of the war with Hamas. Amanda borchel Dan here with our editor, David Horvitz, and senior analyst, Chaviv Retegur, all together in our Jerusalem office. Hello to you both. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. We have a lot to discuss with two important Supreme Court decisions having dropped this week. Two top U.S. officials are making Israel visits, even as the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, vows to respond to the targeted killing of Hamas deputy head Saleh al-Aruri that happened Tuesday night. All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Listeners, today is the third anniversary of The Daily Briefing, and every year I try to get together the original cast. So we have David Horvitz and Khaviv Retegur, and let's have a bit of a guessing game. What do you think we discussed in our first edition in 2021? Wasn't this week, <laughs> in 2021, in the before times? You were going to go to Soleimani, you thought? Maybe Soleimani? No, that was, I think that was four years that ago. That was four years. So and year la- well, last year would have been the very beginning of the judicial right, overhaul. The year, okay, year we can take it backwards, but we didn't actually discuss that in that first episode. We discussed Itamar ben Gvir on the Temple Mount and the word of the year, which was bol'an, the Hebrew word of the year. Bol'an sinkholes. or sinkholes. Wow, yes, remember it great sinkholes? That that's what we were obsessed with. <laughs> exactly. I'll bring those okay. days back. And so probably 20- the new NASA telescope or some wonderful silly thing. It was thing. actually. That's yeah. actually true. So 2022, what do you think we talked about then? You know, time doesn't run linearly in my head, um, <laughs> okay. especially not time in this tell region. Us, Can you even tell us who was the prime minister? Bennett would have been Jenny the prime minister. Yes, Bennett. Okay, that's correct. And we spoke about COVID and the fourth vaccine being available. 2021, who was the prime minister? Bibi. Bibi. And what did we talk about? COVID, COVID, COVID. Okay. Okay. Now, last year, I said, and kind of jokingly, I said, you know, until now, we've had 3 million total listens, episodes that have been listened to. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could double it by this time next year? And we all laughed, ha, 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 ha. Well, I have to say, we're reaching 7 million now. So we've more than doubled it. Wow. It's great. Listen, okay. I, I think, you know, we most of what we do here is, is writing words, but I think having people like in your head, uh, it's an incredibly, it's a, it's a very personal connection. I think people respond to it. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. 
Okay, in the second major legal defeat this week for the government, the High Court of Justice ruled six to five on Wednesday yesterday to postpone the implementation of a controversial law shielding Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So what was this law, David? Well, it was a law that was passed basically to try and prevent um, the Attorney General, the, the judiciary, from forcing Netanyahu to step down because he would he was in breach or would be deemed to be in breach of a conflict of interest agreement that he signed that allows him to be prime minister even though he's on trial. Um, it was passed because the coalition feared that that's what would happen, that the attorney general would would call on him to step down. There's incredible tension between the, this attorney general uh, and the coalition and, and especially Netanyahu. And by the way, she has kind of given mixed signals about that. At some point, she made it clear that it was unthinkable. She wouldn't, under any conceivable circumstance, be seeking his recusal. But then she's also said things slightly different and therefore incredible concern. They passed a law. It's obviously a law that was devoted to making sure that Netanyahu was protected and therefore the high court, interestingly, didn't strike it down altogether, but said, after the next elections, okay, when it's clear that the public, I suppose, would be their thinking, would know what this legislation would entail. And if they want to keep electing these people, they would know that that comes with it. So this comes just mere days after the reasonableness amendment to a basic law was, in fact, repealed, I would say. Khaviv, briefly tell us what this law was. Um, the reasonableness law that was passed by the Knesset was really, I think, the only real uh, sliver of the original massive judicial overhaul package uh, proposed last year by the government in January 2023 that actually passed into law. Um, there were a couple other small things, but that's the one piece of it that anybody really knows. Uh, and the idea was to say that uh, High Court of Justice justices cannot cancel government decisions uh, based on the test called reasonableness, whether or not a decision was reasonable. In a sense, it was a very significant reduction of the court's power on paper, um, because a very large number of cabinet of government decisions, I mean, not very large, but significant, well-known, important, um, and sometimes politically tendentious, also politically very significant um, decisions have been canceled on the reasonableness grounds by the High Court of Justice. Um, but as uh, every legal scholar we've talked to, <laughs> every one of us have ever talked to, uh, has told us from left and from the right, uh, judges are wonderful semanticists, and if they need to cancel something on, they can't cancel something on reasonableness grounds, they can cancel it on proportionality grounds and other, you know, words that lawyers use. And so it, it's it's less significant than it looks. The Supreme Court struck it down, but the most significant part of the decision wasn't the striking down of reasonableness, of the cancellation of reasonableness, which was a 12 to 5, 12 out of, it was a 12 to 3 decision. No, Huge the striking majority. down of reasonableness was 8, eight to seven. 7. I'm sorry, that was the 8 to 7 decision. Very narrow, right, and, and basically along liberal conservative lines among the justices. But the more significant decision was the cancellation of reasonableness was a basic law. And the first question before the court was, can the court even decide, rule, judicially review, cancel a basic law or an amendment to a basic law, 12 to 3 ruled yes. And so the, that's, the, that's the important part. The court just said openly, publicly, with significant conservative justices ruling in favor of expanding the court's power in that way, that it can strike down a basic law if it's passed in certain ways that are egregious or cancel some fundamental part of the democratic order, 
that's the important part of the decision. Hard to know if they're expanding the power or more like defining the power. What do you think, David? I, I agree with Khaviv that the most important part was the principal position that the court took. You could even argue that it was 13-2 because one of the three said under extreme circumstances, this is something that we might be forced to do. You know, we talk about basic laws and we talk about them being quasi-constitutional, but the court's point was that they, in most cases, can be amended or passed without a special majority. So they don't have, they don't require any greater consensus to pass. And therefore, the court was saying, since you treat basic laws like any other laws, we feel that we have an obligation. In in, in the context, they said, you know, if, there, if this is legislation that contradicts Israel's fundamental Jewish and democratic character, I thought that was really significant. I think the other thing that's significant to say about the, there's a few things that, and, you know, I'll try and keep it short. The 8-7 ruling would have been 7-6 the other way, if I've done my maths right. There are two people on the court who aren't there anymore. The Supreme Court President Esther Hayut is, is one of them. She's retired now, but she was able to rule. The 13 remaining members would actually have upheld the reasonable most law. And we don't know, what the, you know, the two who might replace them, we don't know who they are and what their stances might be. Um, but I think the, the, the significance of the 8-7 was, as Khadif said, a relatively minor, relatively minor, the only component of the judicial overhaul package was struck down. That means that anything else they tried to pass, it's pretty clear to me, um, and I might be wrong, but it's pretty clear, and I think it's a reasonable assessment, that a, a, the court would be likely to strike down. So they didn't merely nix the one relatively marginal part of the overhaul. They signaled that anything more radical still, they kind of nixed the overhaul. And therefore, if Netanyahu and his justice minister, Yariv Levin, want to revive it, it's pretty clear again that there will be a huge constitutional crisis. And we're only not having that now because, by the way, there's a war going on. Right, which brings us, of course, to the timing of the decision. As I understand it from our legal reporter, Jeremy Sharon, basically the minute that uh, the former Chief Justice Esther Hayut and Anat Baron sat on this full bench uh, press, they had to deliver their decision by January 12th. They had three months. And the only way not to have delivered the decision now essentially would have been for these two women to say, okay, so I'll take my voice out of it. And that just seems to me as a ridiculous request. What, what do you think? Well, there, you know, there, there were always other things that could have been done. And, and one of the reasons why you're even asking that is because we're in the middle of the war and this is a divisive, this was divisive legislation and it's a divisive ruling and it's an incredibly divided court. Um, Shas uh, were, were trying to engineer legislation that would give retired judges more time to weigh in on cases where they were, you know, on the bench. Uh, it, it got nowhere. Khayyut wanted to rule. You know, you might argue that because we're in the middle of a war, okay, it's passed, we know what the court has had to say, and we'll come back to it later. Maybe it wasn't the worst thing. And, you know, opponents of the court ruling have said, you know, how can you make, and, and they said the same thing about the recusal uh, ruling. Levine said it in both cases. How can you make a ruling at a time like this when you're being incredibly contentious? To which critics of Levine would respond, you're the person who started this whole process. You couldn't have been more contentious and ununifying. So arguments as usual. But also, I, I agree with that completely, but there's also the gap between the first question, can the court rule on basic laws, and the second question, on reasonableness itself. That gap is is the court's message, I think, and it's an important message, because that gap is essentially a critique to the Knesset that says exactly what you said at the beginning. Hey, Knesset, you want to rein in the court? You want to rein in 
in our system, which probably has the fewest checks and balances of any parliamentary system in the free world, um, you want to rein in the big check on executive majoritarian power? Give us other checks. Give us other balances. Or do it and do it by with greater consensus. Right. I mean, that is the point. If we want to be constructive here, which we do because we kind of care about this country, that was the message. It's you know, don't don't give us this kind of situation. You want to amend a basic. You want to work towards a constitution, right? Then do it with consensus. Do it properly. Foster, you know. Half the just the half the conservative justices by dividing their vote on the first question and the second question said to the Knesset, um, "Reasonableness. We are um, accepting." your decision to remove the reasonableness test to weaken us. But we also have the right to review. Why do we have the right to review? Because you have amended basic laws 25 times in four years or something like that. By you the treat Netanyahu's right. so entire parody government is a basic law. Everything that it, we've, the Knesset has treated basic laws regular rules. So either give us a constitution or the court will review basic laws as well. And so that was a message, again, from half the conservative camp on the court. And so I think that this is something that I have high hopes, really optimism, that when we get back to tearing each other apart over this, when the war's over, whenever that is, in eight months or four years, I have high hope that that is the next step for the Knesset, that it builds a much larger constitutional setup than just smashing the court. We'll get to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. And that's actually part of the question in our next item, how long will the war be? Last night, Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah warned Israel against waging war on Lebanon in a televised address a day after a strike blamed on Israel. Israel has not commented that killed Hamas's political number two, the terror chief Saleh al-Aruri. So, among other things, Nasrallah said, if the enemy thinks of waging a war on Lebanon, we will fight without restraint, without rules, without limits, and without restrictions, connected or not to this speech, but possibly connected to the targeted killing. It appears that U.S. President Joe Biden has sent two of his officials to de-escalate the situation. So, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and U.S. Diplomatic Envoy Amos Hochstein are meant to be here imminently. David, do you see them working some kind of magic and de-escalating again since October 7th? I think there are two things going on here um, that um, Nasrallah was addressing. 
um, and he speaks at great length and um, the, the nuggets are, are, are the things you need to look out for. So in response to Aruri, remember, who was slain in a precision strike along with several other uh, Hamas operatives um, in, in the Dahia neighborhood. That's the Hezbollah stronghold in the suburbs of South Beirut. So this was a, a, a knowing challenge, if you like, to Nasrallah. Right In his backyard, a guy who he had good relations with, who's a terrible, evil, blood on his hands, murderer, thought he was going to be safe. And Israel, allegedly, or somebody, um, ensured that this person uh, um, met his end and other people and not uninvolved people. It's quite an extraordinary act of, of intelligence capabilities and, and uh, precision military capabilities. So that was one thing he was reacting to. But he's also, his speech was also about the fact that Israel has said over and over since October the 7th, that given what happened on the Gaza border, the fact that Hezbollah is deployed right up against the border in the north and has the same kinds of forces, except larger and probably more skilled in terms of bursting through and a missile capability that utterly dwarfs Hamas, Israel's message has been, we can't tolerate that anymore. We need Hezbollah to go back north of the Litani River, which was the provision of the UN resolution that ended the 2006 war. So that's what Nasrallah was also reacting to. He said, Aruri's killing will not pass unpunished. But he also warned Israel. He didn't say, I'm going to go to war. He warned Israel. And that, it was in that context. Israel has said, you're going to push me back. I'm telling you, don't, if you go to war against me, you know, it, it will be all the things that you said without limitations. And one other really interesting thing that I thought that I caught that he said, he said, you know, there's an Israeli general who sat with Netanyahu a couple of times and told him, don't open a war with Hezbollah because the Dan region will be, you know, destroyed. Uh, and that refers to the fact that they have this incredible missile capability. And the general in question is a guy called Yitzhak Brick, who is the defense ministry ombudsman, uh, who warned indeed that Israel does not have an answer to many of the assets, quote unquote, that Hezbollah has. And he was on TV late last night talking about Nasrallah having cited him and saying, yeah, you know, Nasrallah knows it. We know it. We need to have some kind of response. We don't have the capability to intercept all those missiles being fired in vast numbers at the same time. It's a, it's a very serious issue. But, of course, at the same time, the chief of staff, uh, Herzi Alevi, doubled down and said Israel is prepared. What do you think he's referring to if there's so much controversy over this? So, again, there's two things. Like, is Nasrallah going to escalate now in the wake of Aruri? The sense you get, and nobody should assume that they know anything, is that he's not looking to drastically escalate Nasrallah, but he will respond in some way. In some way, I don't even want to talk about the possibilities, escalated conflict across the border or all kinds of other potential options. You know, Hezbollah was behind the bombing in Buenos Aires at the Amia building in which almost 100 people were killed. They're capable of doing terrible things, not directly against Israel in Israel. So, so that was, you know, Halevi is trying to deter him from that. But it's also in that wider context. We need, Halevi has said it before. We, need, we cannot end the fighting with Hezbollah where it was on October the 6th. Something that was incredibly problematic before October the 7th is now intolerable. And that, of course, plays into uh, Yoav Gannett, the defense minister's statement last week, I believe it was, where Israel is fighting. Israel has enemies on seven fronts and is fighting on six. So the question is, 
will we fight on all the fronts? But in the I don't next even know years? what the seventh was. So because the implication was it was a threat to Iran, as though we're not doing stuff in Iran. No, actually, I, our our military reporter. I asked him about this uh, specifically, Emmanuel uh, Fabian, and he believes that we are indeed fighting in Iran right. with the gas station uh, so it's the hacking. Houthis is the seventh the that we Houthis haven't tackled the yet. Seventh, yeah. Because we want the world to take care of it. Exactly. Something like that. We're uh, subcontracting, outsourcing. I think um, I was very, um, very gratified by Nasrallah's speech because when Nasrallah says, we're going to destroy you, we're going to decimate you, we're going to absolutely devastate you if you start the war, he's saying, we're not starting the war, everybody calm down, I don't want this, you just embarrassed me disastrously, I'm already embarrassed by the fact that Hamas has been bludgeoned for three months now without me doing anything. Um, Israel woke up on October 7th not just to the problem of Hamas that was not deterred, that was not contained, not just to the problem of our own need for humility, because we did not understand the other side's psychology, we did not understand the other side's planning. It woke up to that very same thing on all fronts. And so we don't believe Hezbollah. We don't play the mind games of Nasrallah. The very fact that Nasrallah telegraphed that he's not going to war inside the war cabinet in Israel, that's that's just being treated as one more ridiculous little Nasrallah mind game. And so we're ready for that war. Um, every question that's raised by BRIC, which these are very important questions that are being raised about the damage we're going to take, at the end of the day, the choice that Israelis face, and I think that the Israeli leadership knows this, and I think that this is the one thing we know from October 7, that has replaced all of the old, you know, hubris and all of the old conviction that we understand everything and knew everything and we're so clever and smart and the tech is going to save us from everything. That has been replaced with the understanding that if we face this threat now, when they have 150 or 160,000 rockets, in 10 years they'll have 250 and 260,000 rockets. And so, we are no we we thought that they were deterred because we have so much firepower but in fact they have by building everything under civilian populations by being willing to destroy their own countries they deterred we were deterred we were deterred by our own firepower by the destruction we would wreak on them if we ever had to go to war against Hamas or Hezbollah we're no longer deterred by that after October 7th and so Nasrallah is talking to himself and that's something that Nasrallah himself has not yet figured out. Sinwar has. And so Hamas's rhetoric has changed over the last three months. But um, I think that they're running away. Our grand strategy, the seven front point, is Iran. But Iran built these proxies to make an Iran-Israel war untenable for Israel. So Israel's clear, basic, simple, long war strategy is to slice off those proxies. So my my estimate, I don't know how to get a, out of this analysis, but basically the analysis is Israel needs a war with Hezbollah because the war is coming. And so we are the only thing left for us to choose is now or later, and now is better. So I don't think Nasrallah has anything to threaten with. And that entire speech, there was something deeply pathetic about that speech. People should go and read the speech. He told his listeners that hundreds of thousands of Israelis have fled Israel he told his listeners that every Israeli has a second passport and a packed suitcase. These are things that, you know, Nasrallah always took pride that he doesn't lie. If he promises something, it's going to happen. And the man has been doing nothing but lying for three months and pathetically lying. And so I, I think that they understand that Israel's now on the warpath. They understand that the proxies are starting to, are going to. That is now the Israeli strategy. And, uh, and that speech to me was everything Israel could have hoped it would be. 
David, I know you have something to say, but I also have a question for you. You mean you think I might disagree with something? That <laughs> it's said, possible, just it... and so I might divert you slightly. But on October 7th or 8th, our defense minister, Yoav Gallant, wanted to go to war with Hezbollah. Allegedly. I mean, that was a leak. From, he didn't okay. say it. It's pretty clear that he did. Right. And he was dissuaded from it, in part. He was overruled. He actually. was overruled. Okay. And I wonder, in the after the war period, when we do have elections again, do you think that Israelis will remember that in some way? And, and it may affect how uh, even the primaries are held in Likud. So I promise that I'll come back to that in a second and answer. You know, I'm, I, I don't think uh, Nasrallah is a fool. And I think we must be very concerned about any new hubris about entering and deepening conflicts. Uh, tackling Hamas in Gaza is proving um, no less complicated and in some aspects much more complicated than was thought. Um, maybe half of the Hamas battalions are destroyed or, or non-functional in the north. There's a long way to go in the south and it's much more complicated, including because so much of the Gaza population is there. The tunnel network is very sophisticated, etc. And again, Hamas dwarfs is, is dwarfed by Hezbollah in terms of the capacity. I don't think Israel is uh, looking to open a, a major war with Hezbollah right now. It would rather deal with Hamas first. And we don't, as far as you know, any open source information is, uh, is telling us, have a sufficient answer if Hezbollah chooses to use you know, a great deal of its missile power. We can destroy Lebanon. And you know, Gallant has said that we can reduce Beirut to Gaza City, et cetera, et cetera. The damage that we would sustain right now, I think, is untenable for Israel. And therefore, I agree with you that the fact that uh, Nasrallah didn't go to war, uh, that's, you know, that's certainly uh, um, you know, good news. But if Israel is going to tackle uh, Hezbollah, which it needs to, I don't think we're ready to do that yet. I think you know, Israel needs to prepare the defensive capabilities, the offensive capabilities we have, the defensive capabilities for those you know, initial, however long it takes to, to stop the, ro the rockets and the missiles, to make sure you know, Iron Dome can't cope. The other uh, elements of the, of the range of defenses can't cope with that quantity. And therefore, Israel needs to prepare. We need to take this seriously. We do need to take down Hezbollah. I agree with you. But I think the more time that Israel has to prepare, you know, the better. On the politics of it, you know, I just think it, our politics is utterly unpredictable and, and it's kind of, it, you know, you know, if, if there were elections today, uh, the opposition parties would win by miles, Netanyahu would be finished, maybe people would think in the Likud, you know, Gallant was the person who was the smartest or maybe he would have been discredited by how things play out. We don't have elections tomorrow and so therefore the polls, and we report them of course because they reflect the public mood and so on, we're, you know, people aren't being asked to make that decisions. And there are so many factors in play that will affect, you know, how people vote come the day. Okay. Can I just, I'm sorry. Nope. I just want to agree. Okay. You can uh, Israel's manifest interest is to fight these proxies one at a time. And therefore, I completely agree. In terms of timing, it's going to be a while. Israel doesn't want an immediate Hezbollah war. I think that Nasrallah also doesn't want to be alone in the, in the field when it comes. And so he, it's interesting because his interest is to fight alongside Hamas. Israel's deeply divided. A lot of the army is, is right now in Gaza. That Gaza's insurgents, counterinsurgency, Israel has announced that the Gaza counterinsurgency is going to take a year and more. In other words, it might take a long time and Israel's ready for it. That's part of the war planning. So I, I completely agree. It's not coming soon. It's definitely coming. It's better for Israel the longer it, the longer it takes. 
Listeners, this has been a live recording that is also being uh, recorded on video for our community members. So if you are a community member, you will receive a link in your email. It will go out tonight. And if you're not a community member, consider it. So thank you for joining us today on today's daily briefing. We'll have another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. Shalom.